TVA 21 Academy Radio. We humans want a sea tenderly caressing the shores, a sea whose bright, deep blue soothes sorrows and anger, a sea safe to swim in, a sea where cadavers and waste disappear, a sea of pristine predators who leave us alone, a sea whose delicacies joyfully die in our arms, a sea free of stings, a sea whose waves carry us wherever we'd like to go, a sea that lets us breathe over and under water, a sea that warms us and absorbs our heat, a sea of creatures to talk to, a sea of singing and dancing and falling in love, not falling, a sea of silence, a sea that teaches immortality and peace, a sea that forgives and forgets, a sea that is all gentle touch. But what are the wants of the sea? What are the wants of the sea? Welcome to Ocean Wants, a series of 10 podcasts that playfully explores how non-humans could like our planet to be. Conceived and hosted by Ingo Nierman, Ocean Wands was commissioned to celebrate TVA 21 Academy's 10th anniversary. Episode 6, Conservation Libido, featuring Eva Hayward. The ocean refuses empathetic ethics based on sameness with us humans. What does the urge to save nature in certain ways reveal about us and our desire? I'm Ingo Niemann, a speculative writer, most recently of the book Mare Amoris, and today I'm talking to Eva Hayward, historian of science and faculty member in the Department of Gender and Women's Studies at the University of Arizona. First, I, I apologize for the texture of my voice. The desert is wet right now, and so organisms like mildew and mold are Uh, casting their spores into the air, and my body is incredibly allergic to them, um, which is why I live in the desert, but sometimes during the monsoon it changes. Anyway, uh, which is to say I live in Tucson, Arizona. I teach at the University of Arizona in the Department of Gender and Women's Studies. Uh, even though my PhD and graduate education is not in gender and women's studies. I've in many ways written myself into those conversations around queer and trans theories of subjectivity, but my training is in science studies, in um, visual studies, and so I have kept Uh, these parallel lines of critical engagement um, alive throughout my career, um, and oftentimes they intersect. After you did your PhD with Donna Haraway in Santa Cruz, you went for 
is it correct, a research assistant position at a marine laboratory as well in Santa Cruz? Yes, I had worked at two different marine laboratories. The first as an undergraduate uh, at the College of the Atlantic, which is this magical uh, interdisciplinary college, liberal arts college on the coast of Maine, not so far from where I grew up, where I did work on humpback whale conservation science, um, particularly studying uh, photo identification of humpback whale flukes. Um, and then from there, I moved to uh, New Mexico, where I began training in anthropology. And from there, I moved to Santa Cruz to work with Donna Haraway. Um, and while I was there, I began to do a research work at the Long Marine Laboratory, um, which is in Santa Cruz. I worked with Alison Gong and Chris Amico and worked primarily on coral conservation, uh, specifically uh, Bellinphilia elegans, which are these beautiful cup corals. So what did drive you to this work and then in particular to the work with cup corals? So my interest in ocean work uh, perhaps is a mystery to me, um, perhaps uh, a compulsion I can't quite yet answer why. But of course, I was deeply sensitive to um, environmental crises and questions about environmental degradation of ocean spaces. And in some levels, uh, I was initially interested in the question of human-animal uh, encounters. And so one of the things that I found interesting about marine science work with invertebrates was that they were not organisms that humans easily project a sense of self onto, um, that in many ways jellyfish, octopuses, corals, nudibranchs, uh, and many other organisms, tinophores, that I was interested in, refused the kind of human imagination of, I see myself in this organism. And this puzzle, I, I guess you might say, was incredibly intriguing to me and perhaps resonated with um, what I was experiencing and also thinking about in terms of trans women's identity, how it is that trans women are looked at, um, that it becomes difficult to identify with the desire to change sex, for instance, the pleasures of that um, metamorphosis, if you will. So invertebrates became a space for me to think through some of these questions. So how was your encounter with uh, invertebrates in the laboratory? My encounter with the invertebrates was interesting in the sense that um, at that time I was undergoing 
hormonal transformations. And I found that the hormones, particularly estrogen, was altering my sensorium. And I suddenly experienced hapticity or tactility or what we might call touch in this ecstatic way. It was as if I had never touched the world before or in this particular kind of way. So my sensorium was hyperactive and unfamiliar to me. Um, so with working with cup corals, they have no eyes. Their sensorium is radically different than mine, um, but they are constantly reaching out with their tentacles into the environment for feeding purposes, for other kinds of self uh, care, if you will, or maintenance of wellness for the organism's survival, for instance. Um, so there was a strange resonance with um, feeding, caring for these cup corals in the laboratory space, and my own uh, uncanny sensorium. So I found that space uh, really uh, exciting and novel. Uh, so I began to write about both the importance of sensation in scientific practice, not just the visual or the acoustic. Perhaps this is the reason why whales and dolphins and sea lions are especially uh, alluring because of the familiar ways in which they rely on sound and vision or solicit our uh, own sensitivities to sound and vision. Um, but here in vertebrates, particularly these cup corals, they were not uh, soliciting uh, the familiar uh, sensory relays that we have with organisms. And I was also in a state of sensory disorientation, if you will. And in that space, which perhaps is temporary, perhaps is um, unique in some ways, allowed for me to think more about how these organisms make demands upon the scientist in the laboratory spaces, maybe in ways that scientists are not always attuned to um, because of the primacy of ear and eye in those research spaces. Did you actually touch the cup corals? Yes, many times. There's a certain act of um, bad boundaries, if you will, uh, where I would feed or clean out the cup corals. So I would use a, a glass pipette to help clean out or provide them brine shrimp, which always felt a bit invasive, for lack of a better word. Um, and I would move the individual corals from their water tanks into 
the space where we would do a microscopic work on them, for instance, taking out the gut contents to determine eggs and sperms, to determine gametes um, that were being released by these particular corals. But in all of those interactions, there was enormous uh, physicality. I don't know, and nor perhaps will I ever know, what it meant for the coral, but for me, there was a certain kind of um, sensitivity to how the coral retreated. It retracts its tentacles. Initially, there's a curiosity, but soon the coral recognizes me as not food and uh, retreats into its interiority. Are they stingy? They have nematocyst, but they are not uh, strong enough to penetrate my fingers, my skin. When I uh, did some diving, the first thing I was told was uh, don't touch the corals. They are animals and don't touch them. I think that there was a paradox to marine science that I tried to stay with. In some fundamental ways, I believe that these organisms should not be uh, touched uh, and should be left alone um, to the degree that they are not having to retreat their tentacles from human fingers. But I found also the research that was being done was deeply interested in conservation science and there is value in thinking seriously about the survival um, of these organisms. Um, so I found myself caught between two registers, epistemological registers, if you will, and I tried to stay uncomfortable with that tension. I never found a way to completely resolve that tension. And perhaps we shouldn't resolve that tension. For me, the paradox when being in the sea is that, on the one hand, it's all about touch. Your whole body is being touched like nowhere else. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, when it comes to the creatures in the sea, it's all about uh, looking. Most of them, you cannot hear them, you cannot smell them, and you're not supposed to touch them, and they wouldn't allow to touch you. Yes, I'm, I think that the immersivity of the sensorium into another medium is incredibly intriguing. Um, you're right. When I'm diving for pleasure, I do not touch these organisms. Uh, it's quite difficult to touch them anyway. But I find that a new sensorium, a new dimension of tactility, as you say, that engulfs 
the fullness of the body. In many ways, we forget how, you know, our knees feel a space or how our, you know, our elbows feel an environment. And when we're submerged in water, um, we have a, a kind of collapse between visuality and tactility, a kind of synesthetic involvement in that environment. And this is intriguing to me, obviously, with regards to uh, sort of personal questions that I was exploring in terms of my own hormonally altered sensorium, but also as an opportunity to think about ocean space as producing a unique sensory interface that required um, our attunement. In, In some levels, our bones become percussive. We feel sound underwater, not with our eardrums, but instead we feel it with our bone structure. That sound is also in many ways haptic in that dimension rather than acoustic. So I found this an important place to reflect upon, perhaps to help me and others imagine new sensory dispositions to non-human life um, with maybe some uh, modest hope that that new sensory disposition might expand how we understood our senses, how we understood our perception of environments. You came up with the beautiful term fingery eyes. Could you explain that term a bit? Yeah. Interestingly, the idea of fingery eyes happened in in multiple stages for me. The first was working, playing, if you will, with filmmaking. I was in collaboration with an experimental filmmaker, Nina Afonarov, and we would work in her studio uh, applying inks, mediums, materials, salt, sugar, you know, fluids, many different kinds of fluids to 16 millimeter film strips. So you'd work in this incredibly small scale. And then we would move it through a steam back, which is a crystal device, which enlarges this small still into a much larger image. And there was something about the shuttling between scales that relied heavily on tactility with some sensitivity to the visual, but you could not yet see what it would look like. You had to rely on a loose visual interpretation and a deft hand applying these materials, and then it would be translated through the steam back, and you would see this beautiful visual uh, image. So that was an initial encounter with fingery eyes. 
The second was, of course, the hormonal dimension I talked about. I remember sitting at a cafe holding a cup of coffee and suddenly it was as if I had never touched a cup before. I found myself lost in the caressing knowledge, lost in the caressing epistemology of trying to know what a cup is again, uh, that my tactile sensorium, and not that sense alone, but for this conversation, that sense of touch was profoundly uh, unfamiliar. And then the third was being in the laboratory space, primarily working again with microscopes, uh, realizing that there is this incredible materialization between the relay of light in my eyes that moves through lenses in a microscope onto a slide to determine the gametes of cup corals, as an example, that there was a profound materiality at work, not just in those technologies, eye, microscope, and slide, and coral, but that light itself was at work and materializing each of those technologies. And fingery eyes became a way to think about the fullness, the materialized fullness of those encounters, of those processes of perception. And so fingery eyes has meant a number of different things to me over the years. But it basically means that your fingers turn into some kind of eyes? I, I guess I thought of it the other way, that my eyes became tentacular. My eyes had a sensory disposition toward touch uh, more than simply eyes uh, as organs of sight that I wanted to begin to conceptualize synesthetic dimensions of knowing. Um, it, it's true that one's fingers may also feel like they are seeing. So for me, this space between sensations, I see as a, an opening or a dimension of conceptual consideration that undoes our very limited and quite problematic notions of what the human is and what the animal is, that through sensation, and particularly the uncanny forms of sensation that we sometimes call synesthetic or synesthesia, that in attending to them, because they happen all the time, um, always already they are happening, that it was an opportunity to uh, unhuman or unanimal uh, relationalities so that we might attune ourselves to something else, 
something we don't yet know, and sit with that as a provocation. You came up with the term for this state, uh, tranimality. Right. And I understand it as a way yeah, to, to, to combine transgender studies and animal studies in both overcoming humanism, in both overcoming binarism. Right. When I began to write about trans women in particular, uh, transsexual women, women who explore their pleasure or want through uh, technologies of bodily change, um, I became acutely aware of how so many of those experiences, bodily experiences, exceeded um, our understanding if we only thought about them in terms of gender and sex. That so much about trans women's changes uh, exceed the narrative of male to female, man to woman, transition as a narrative of being trapped and somehow being free. For me, these are all quite problematic and actually limit our understanding of what trans might mean, might be for us. So I pushed against uh, trends within transgender studies, trans studies, um, that were primarily interested in the reclaiming of beingness that was organized around, I finally have achieved womanhood, or I finally have achieved manhood, or I finally have achieved non-binarism. For me, all of these were problems rather than the solution. Um, so I wanted to stay with trans as desire, trans as the following of one's pleasure to undetermined designations. In fact, maybe there is no coherent designation, um, or rather, sorry, destination, um, although designation works too, uh, that for me trans uh, offered uh, an opportunity to unthink sex, gender, to unthink uh, the ways in which these technologies, which are inherited through, you know, colonialism and racial violence, mu must be questioned, must be rethought. Um, so in many ways, the open-endedness of trans as pleasure coincided with my desires to not know uh, as we're all taught to know the animal, to 
recognize that the organism, the life form in front of me is delimited, that my efforts to know are often efforts to refuse to be um, attentive to, to be attuned with this life form, that I found that so many of the technologies of intimacy that happen in animal studies, for instance, actually are repudiations of profound acknowledgement, profound disorientation in the experience of another earthling, another life form. I don't think that... um, you know, being trans is the same as uh, disorienting the animal, um, you know, disorienting my relationship with the cup corals. But to the degree that my sensorium is at work in these encounters, they share resonance. So Tranimalities was an effort Um, by me and Jamie Weinstein to complexify the endless collapsing of human-animal and sex and gender. You could perceive um, the sea as a kind of trans paradise. Mm. There's so much sex change going on. There are hermaphrodites everywhere. There's a lot of, like environmental sex determination and um, suddenly a male becomes a female or the other way around. Um, How do you think about that? Yeah, Malin Aking and I wrote an essay called Toxic Sex um, and we wanted to study these stories about endocrine-disrupting compounds, xenoestrogens, altering the bodily sex of other organisms. Um, So plastics particularly are a great example of materials that leach estrogens into environments and have consequences on the lifeways of creatures. And we were interested in problematizing how our ideas about sex and gender and also the fantasy of sexual change um, obscured other kinds of political crises at work. So it was very common to find stories in popular science, but also in scientific research papers that were preoccupied with the sex changing because of, you know, pollutants. But often what was hidden was how the locations of these sites of sex change or pollutants were often taking place in poor communities, in communities of color, how environmental racism was the backdrop upon which this more sensational story was taking place. And we wanted to uh, complicate that focus and ask what's at stake in 
wanting to think about the anxieties of sex change. Part of it is the transphobia around bodily integrity, bodily autonomy, the idea that the body is natural. And if we could unrest some of those logics, we might actually become more attentive to the larger scene of environmental degradation, the role racism, classism, and imperialism have had in these sites of ecological catastrophe. So, you know, that's an example of the disruptive uh, evolution, if you will, or disrupted ecologies. The other is the ways in which, for instance, oysters change sex, or nudibranchs, which I love, which are sea slugs, for lack of a better word, sea slugs, which are hermaphroditic and are also potentially cannibalistic. So each encounter may function as one becoming male or female or being lunch, depending on that moment. I understand the desire, um, particularly by minoritized uh, sexual and gendered subjects, you know, queer and trans people, to look to those examples as evidence of our naturalness. But I think this quite problematic, uh, a path forward. And again, part of it is the reliance on the naturalization of our ideas of the body, of the human, of the animal, that in the effort to see myself in these stories as a queer or trans person, paradoxically, is an effort to enact transphobia, to enact homophobia um, through the identification of one subjectivity in, in the other. So I, in many ways, encourage my students, and I hope uh, I have been somewhat successful in uh, work I've written to refuse that critical pathway and to opt for the questioning of our knowledge claims that structure all of those processes of identification that both the story, the naturalized story and the disrupted ecology story are actually surprisingly similar efforts on the part of knowledge to re-solidify what we already know or already think we know about the so-called human and the so-called animal. And the same could be said for the so-called man, male, and female, woman. I remember, I cannot uh, tell the exact year, but it was in the years after kind of the peak of the AIDS crisis mm -hmm. um, that there was a debate on whether being gay, if there's a genetic predisposition for it or not. And uh, there was an enormous insistence in the gay community back then on mm -hmm. that there is a genetic predisposition. It's not, 
given to you by education. It's not something that happens while your mother is pregnant with you. No, it's in your genes. Right. You know, it's natural. And I think, or as I understand what you're saying, it's kind of opposing this kind of essentialism mm -hmm. of being trans. Right, exactly. I'm not that interested in why trans women desire bodily change. I'm interested that it is about her, my pleasure, that I, I know that uh, there are many other narratives in trans studies or trans activism or trans art making uh, that are devoted to I finally am my authentic self. For me, I think a lot more about the role of sexuality, not sexual identity, but desire, want, lust, pleasure, that subtends the conscious activity of self-naming, changing legal papers, going to a surgeon, going to a doctor. I'm interested in the unconsciousness of sexuality at work in the moving through those different technologies of self. There's been enormous pressure in trans studies to separate sexual identity from gender identity. The problem is, is that both of these structures, sexual identity and gender identity, rely on identity work. They rely on the organization of the self into a dimension of classification or into an ordered uh, subject. In doing this sorting work in trans studies, it has often erased the role sexuality, not identity, but unconscious or drive sexuality, has in the pleasures we call transsexuality. So I've begun to deepen and be more exacting about the centrality of unconscious sexuality, perhaps uh, autoerotics, uh, perhaps uh, polymorphous perversity that subtends transsexuality. Um, and so for me, trans isn't unique in any way to these processes, except that the role sexuality has in this materialization of the body, of the sexed body, of anatomy, um, is perhaps more at the surface of things. One is forced to confront these forces. Yes, I'm now a cis male, but it's a construction. And I, I'm very aware because I kind of stepped back from it when I was in my 20s. And I did this kind of analysis and I think in the end, it, it was very a, a willing decision, but based on arranging with the body that I have. Right. Yeah, you could say it was lazy. <laughs> if uh, <laughs> <you know. laughs> um, And this is why uh, I would love to 
come back to this essay you wrote with Marlina King. She has this whole thesis of sex as a reaction norm. Like every creature kind of has a certain potential to, to change. With mm -hmm. some it's smallest, with some is larger, but for actually no creature, anything is really fixed. Right. And I found this really compelling and because we are now very aware of when it comes to microbes, um, our gut bacteria, that there's a constant like genetic transfer taking place between you know, different uh, lives. We are not just inheriting our genes, but we as well get them kind of from the side. And the same is true for, for hormones. Yeah, it's not just because of pollution that we are exposed to hormones. Animals pee and so there is hormones all the time, right? Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. I approached that project from uh, a similar kind of commitment to uh, sex as relational. I had written um, an essay about the Tenderloin in San Francisco, where uh, I was living, transitioning, and I wanted to understand how my neighborhood was shaping this, was shaping my own transition. And I looked at many different Uh, factors and variables. How does noise, how does architecture, how do these different forces shape the change that I'm undergoing? And in many ways exceeds my ability to understand it. That much about sex is not conscious um, our narratives about it are, but the processes that go into materializing us as anatomy or as sexed bodies exceeds our control, exceeds our intentionality. That somehow I have not escaped my maleness. I have not escaped the consequences of being raised as a boy, even if I was, you know, tormented uh, since childhood for being feminine and a sissy, all of that um, has shaped the kinds of bodiliness that I am. And even as I have desired um, such that my body is more registered by the world as womanly, that all of these things are vast networks that impinge upon my bodily beingness, my bodiliness. So I think when Malin and I worked together, we shared this sensitivity that That if we simply understood that sex is a vast array of activities, um, not just, you know, it's hormonal, it's, it's chromosomal, it's 
physical, anatomical, but actually all of the percussive, the forces that summon us into sexed bodiliness are far more capacious, far more expansive than we have attended to. That we might also think differently about uh, the spectacularization of sex change because of endocrine disrupting compounds. I find it uh, interesting and perception on people transitioning. It's about, yes, okay, you're taking hormones and they have an effect on you. And at the same time, most hormones are taken by cis people. They take so much more hormones in total, at least, in menopause, in andropause. Right. There is so much artificiality in all genders. Yeah? Right. Absolutely. I, I taught a class uh, on plastic, just a, a whole course dedicated to thinking about plastic. So one of the questions I pose to my students, which is maybe slightly cruel, but honest, is, is there a, a much larger unconscious desire at work when we um, use these materials and we uh, unleash uh, disruptive compounds that will alter our immune systems, that will alter fertility rates, that will alter breast health, that will alter the body. But but allow that to remain unconscious. Is pollution, at least in the forms I'm just talking about, an effect of um, unbearable uh, desire for disrupting bodily sex? So my students who are in my classroom with their, you know, their Starbucks coffees with the plastic straws, you know, I said, all, all of these plastic substances or, you know, the acrylic nails, which I was also wearing, you know, our, our clothing, which has so many plastics in them, the classroom itself that is, you know, um, dispersing all kinds of disrupting compounds to, to various degrees that, in this act alone of being in a classroom together, it seems we are all searching for disrupted sex. Um, might it be more interesting and perhaps less brutalizing to uh, economically impoverished populations, to nations that are um, disenfranchised by um, the world-making of empire, by environmental racisms, by coming to terms with the unbearability of answering gender with a body. So you, my students look at me sort of dismayed because in some ways I'm saying right now in this room, you are wanting sex change. And why? Why are you wanting sex change? That some ways it's easy to look at me, their, their professor, and say, obviously, she wants sex change. She desires that. And that, 
you know, they may differently think it's cool or, you know, it's somehow deviant or confusing. Um, but they too are involved in another form of uh, sexual modification that is not attended to. So that that is something I would say in response to what you asked. I'd also just offer a footnote. In, in my trans studies classes, I put pressure on the... Sorry, a bit of water. I put pressure on the trans-cis divide. I understand why trans studies, trans activism has wanted to create the domain we call cisgendered. To say that when you are trans, you do not cohere to you know, a sex and gender designation that are socially acceptable. And that cisgender is about the naturalization. I find the use of cis problematic. I'm somewhat singular, not not alone. I think Jules Gill-Peterson, I think uh, Zakia Amon-Jackson, though not in trans studies and, and black studies, have put some important pressure on what do we mean by cisgendered? So here are some of my critiques of it. The first is, and this is in conversation with uh, Jackson's work, that cis assumes that man and male are achievable when we know through the legacies of colonization, anti-Blackness, racism, that there lacks coherence between the designation of gender and sex, that how we think about these in trans studies presumes whiteness as a baseline for understanding how a woman and a man, a male and a female can be sorted, but that much of those sex and gender technologies are racial technologies first. Secondly, I don't believe that so-called cisgendered people exist. <laughs> what do I mean by this? I have never encountered, never had a conversation, I'm well into my middle age, with someone who has coherently a gender sex signaling that in many ways, these are vast undertakings, exhausting undertakings, um, in many ways, unbearable undertakings, and that most so-called cisgender people, if not all, cannot maintain the coherence that is demanded of us all in the social order. So... Um, this is just old-fashioned, you know, Judith Butler, you know, bodies that matter, uh, gender trouble. Um, but 
for me, there is no subject. There is no subject that is coherently gendered and sexed, uh, that they remain permanently in crisis um, in the ways I described with regards to environmental issues, but also just daily, psychologically, physically, that the struggle to answer a gendered message with the body is incredibly taxing and incredibly uneven. So I would rather um, not privilege, the irony, I'd rather not privilege so-called cis people with the capacity to make coherent what can never be coherent. In terms of political work, of being attentive to um, trans politics, to um, being attentive to trans phobia, trans misogyny, uh, absolutely, I think one should recognize the challenges, a non-trans person rather, should recognize the challenges of materializing the incoherence of sex gender regimes and the punishment and brutalizing punishment that comes with the materialization of that incoherence. Those are spaces of political solidarity, political uh, care, if you will, or political work. Um, but I don't think adding yet another identity work or identity claim, cisgendered, helps very much in confronting the, the worlding, the world-making that is transphobia, particularly trans misogyny. The only reason for me, actually, that I'm willing to identify myself as a cis male, I see it only as an exercise in, it's the same as uh, that we have with uh, identify yourself as white, even though it's horrible for me to do this, yeah, because how should we overcome racism by even acknowledging that something like race exists, but then again, I get the exercise. I know very well that when I said I took the lazy way, it worked only in a certain niche where my cis maleness was kind of accepted as such. But okay, this is getting a bit away from, from the topic of the podcast, <laughs> mm. but maybe only a, a bit because I wonder how could the ocean help us in overcoming these essentialist ideas of sex and gender. Right. <coughs> Sorry. Mold, mildew. Um, to think about the ocean as a space, place, um, dimension of thinking through some of these questions I'll share with you a, a, a kind of chunk of work I've been engaged in, which, you know, right now the archive and with many different pieces connected to this archive, written and, and presented pieces, um, I call After Medusa. And in this uh, collection of work, um, 
Part of this archive includes looking at Lenny Riefenstahl's um, turn to the ocean, um, her diving off the coast of Africa, the Red Sea, the Indian Ocean in, in this area. And she uh, created two books, um, Coral Gardens and uh, I think Wonders Underwater. Um, and she also created the final film of her career, which was Impressions Underwater. What about Riefenstahl's fascism, her desire to find transcendental states of being? Um, how are her fascist metaphysics at work in the photographs of coral reefs? Um, and so I found that in that work, so much of the ocean, the ocean space, the organism she tries to capture, exceed her um, beautifying perspective, her essentializing perspective, that how the photographs um, materialize, to go back to fingery eyes, materialize the water, materialize the light sources, and ultimately work self-referentially uh, on the camera and Riefenstahl herself. Interestingly, just to clarify why after Medusa, she photographs a lot of Gorgonian uh, corals, and of course, much of the myth of Medusa subtends the scientific nomenclature of certain corals um, that we find in the, the Indian Ocean, the Red Sea, off the coast of Africa, uh, that in the mythology, we remember when uh, Perseus beheads Medusa, her blood touches seaweed and that becomes coral. Now, second part of this archive looks at the ways in which colonial violence in Africa, coastal uh, ports of colonization and slavery are also sites of ecological degradation, that many of the legacies of racial colonialism, racial violence, also are sites where ecosystems are destroyed. And so I wanted to track that. How does the ocean and those reefs reveal that environmental crises are almost always about racism? about the histories of racism. The third part of that archive is Australian coral scientists who are trying to transgenically create trans animals, if you will, really trans corals, by, by recognizing that coral reef corals that rely on sexual reproduction take enormously long times 
to reproduce. So 25 years, for instance, a certain species of coral that are important in reef construction um, require that time to develop in order to reproduce. Scientists propose a more radical form of, of bodily modification, if you will, to the organism coral by altering its uh, sexual reproductivity to asexual reproductivity so that asexual reproduction might allow uh, reefs to regenerate faster to and respond more immediately to environmental pressures. So I became really interested in going to the scientific papers, and I found that so much of our, or, you know, Western science's preoccupations with um, sex, gender, uh, sexual ambiguity, are at work um, in these very compelling, very um, radical forms of scientific experimentation. And so I guess what I'm saying about all these different archives is that oceans continue to provide a dimension of consideration for how our um, unattended to racism or unattended to sexism, um, trans anxiety, uh, continue to shape not only the crises themselves, but also shape the solutions that we continue to propose. That somehow the very medium of racism, the very medium of sexism, that these are a kind of conceptual substrate, subtending um, ordering, uh, are at work in the most regressive of these problems, that is, you know, the continued ruination of ocean environments, but also in the most progressive or radical efforts to save these spaces. I mean, consider, to return to Riefenstahl, she, at the end of her life, uh, joins Greenpeace, she says it's the, her only party affiliation, that the reason she's photographing the corals is that it's a chance to see them in their healthy, natural state before they go extinct. So that something about our environmental response remains in conversation with the original problems that have put us into a state of crisis, um, that somehow we think we are answering these problems and addressing them, but I find that in a number of ways, the activist answer is actually a reification of the original catastrophe. One aspect of that history is the anthropocentric idea that organisms are for us, 
Um, they belong to us. And in that, our care for them, our stewardship, if you will, is an enactment of rather regressive and problematic ideals. Um, what do I think of as an alternative? It's um, a very hard question. I'm not sure I have an answer, but I will offer um, some insight from another catastrophe, a scene of catastrophe, which is sex and gender. To me, sex and gender as regimes of ordering are catastrophes. But what to do with that? Um, there are parts of trans activism and trans studies that imagines we can simply opt out, that we can deploy new language, like the pronoun they, we can deploy non-binarism in the form of non-binary identification as, as a way to intervene in the catastrophe of sex gender regimes. And I understand or at least I appreciate that desire, that ambition. I think for me, I've felt that we haven't attuned ourselves enough to difference, to the aesthetics of difference, to the politics of difference, to the materializations of difference. Um, to be at the place where we can simply opt out. So I've often approached, um, for instance, transsexual womanhood, which for the politics of non-binarism, for the politics of, of pronouns they, might actually seem quite conservative, that, that I use she, that I undergone bodily modification, that I am experienced by the world as feminine, a woman, as an incredibly regressive and conservative uh, orientation, you know, what sometimes gets called trans normativity. And I, I understand that critique, but I think one has to come to terms with their own position in the violences of race, sex, and gender, and sex and gender as racial formations, by attuning oneself to how um, one's body, one's sensorium, one's subjectivity is continually materialized by these forces, despite our agency, despite our political commitments, um, that this seems to me a less arrogant or anthropocentric um, pursuit. It, it doesn't mean that anthropomorphism or anthropocentrism is not still at work, but I think one has to go into the, to use Donna Haraway's phrase, to stay with the trouble. For me, it would be going into the trouble so as to better understand the processes 
that have materialized my condition and the differences of my condition from other differences. That it seems to me that is the beginning of an ethics. And I'm not sure that despite the presumption that conservation science is ethical, I actually worry that it is um, obscenely moral and not ethical, that ethical requires something much more nuanced and, and difficult and maybe unbearable. That's where I'm trying to work, um, is the proliferation of difference to resist the frames, the orders, in the enunciations of the ordering structures that have got us into this incredibly terrifying situation. What about the sexism, racism, speciesism, kind of all the cruelties within the ocean that are not human-made? Say more. Say more what you mean. As you say, we are very relational, which means... Mm -hmm. Nature is also relational to us. In this kind of entanglement, don't you feel the urge to take position? I mean, in yeah. case you encounter cruelties within nature, right. to, to act? Yes. I mean, this is the paradox of, of conservation science, is that its attention to relationality does require a responsible, responding engagement. So I am not of the mind that we should just uh, be neutral. I, I don't actually think it's possible. But I do think we must always be prepared to question uh, our bad questions. And, and it isn't that the questioning the bad question makes a, a good question. It means that it's not the same bad question, um, that it might provide another register of response or another register of critical engagement. I myself am engaged in that, but I also recognize that my questions are unfinished and that much of what I've used to construct my question is itself a problem in answering that question. That I've built a question out of catastrophe that that question can't help but be shaped by that catastrophe. A lot of the environmentalism has a global approach. We live on this planet, there's only one planet, so we have to take care of it. But I wonder if this approach is just not realistic mm -hmm. and it is enforcing uh, the role of humans as the exceptional species. Mm -hmm. I think it's still a very humanistic approach. And yeah, I wonder if, and this is a bit what I notice when speaking with different marine biologists, all say no nature will always exist and what is bad for some species is good for another species mm -hmm. there's always someone profiting mm -hmm. from human intervention and 
if it's the jellyfish, yeah, they're doing fine. And if it's not the jellyfish, then it's the microbes or a species we are not even aware of at the moment. Mm -hmm. When we want something in nature to stay as it is or be more like it was some decades or maybe centuries ago, it's all about us. It's what we want. So um, we can be very... uh, Uh, we we just have to be very open about our own preferences Mm -hmm. and say, yeah, but it's not about nature, but it's about me loving dolphins or it's Mm -hmm. about me loving jellyfishes and kind of accept that when it comes to nature, there will be the same amount of conflicts between humans Mm -hmm. because uh, it's just about, you know, what is it what we want to preserve and if we say we want coral reefs then maybe uh, genetically modified coral reefs because these are the only ones we can get Mm -hmm. I hear what you're saying Uh, and for me without it being simply individualistic but I, I do think that attention to these differences that may look like individual preference or look like um, individual uh, obsessions or commitments, that difference isn't simply individualism, though we might experience our differences as individualism. But if we go back to the story I offered about how the enigmatic message of gender is transformed into the materialization of the body. That in that relay, in that exchange, there is also the social order with its aesthetics, with its political investments that impinge upon our differences as well. And I think that a more radical politics of difference doesn't have to be atomizing in the sense of me in my uh, order or engagement with the world, but it is me and my as it is being percussed, shaped, modulated by planetary forces in which the social order is among them, um, that that becomes a way of beginning to um, create space for more nuanced ethical responses. So I I agree with you, the global is, is really problematic, that it ends up rehearsing you know empire it rehearses fantasies of mother earth of maternity it rehearses you know maternity as a site of enormous conflict in which how how do we treat mothers how do we treat our mother how are mothers treated um, in relationship to nations uh, in relation to patriarchy and and white supremacy. So for me, the the global is simply a rehearsal 
of an aggrandizement, as you say, of humanism that it is stewed literally in the same problem, um, even though it seems like a good answer to environmental uh, trouble. And something else has to happen. And I don't think it's the individual um, per se, though to the degree that the individual understands, as, as you were talking about earlier, about what does it mean to be white and what does it mean to be uh, male and how those things are choreograph um, your difference, but that are also choreographed for you by forces that uh, exceed the individual. So this, I think, is um, a way of approaching environmental concerns. I hate the word concerns. Uh, environmental trouble. And I, I do think, even though it may feel like a very strange direction to say, as you offered, you know, I want to save dolphins because I really like them, that that seems to me closer to one, understanding why, you know, certain other life forms are devalued and certain life forms are valued. It allows us to begin to complexify um, those investments, even as we may continue to be committed to dolphin survival. This acknowledging our own preferences was not meant in a like fatalistic way. This is just the first step to, you know, once you realize, oh, 80% want dolphins and only so little want the other creatures to be safe, then you can question your own preferences. Right. You can see exactly what they're based on. And they are not only based on this is just what humans prefer. Of course, we are mammals, so our preference is mammals. But is this really the case? Or, you know, right. is this a white male mm -hmm. preference? Or mm -hmm. is this related to a certain class? Is this related to certain uh, education? And uh, to exactly to question these preferences. We don't just have a sexual preferences. We also have nature preferences. Mm -hmm. And uh, we can uh, overcome them. And... Uh, <laughs> we can also be trans in that respect. Right. I agree with you very much. I think my interest in sexuality and the role of libidinal drives, unconscious sexuality, is at work in conservation science. Not simply, you know, how to have questions of diversity in a laboratory practice, which is often how identity gets managed by science is diversity work. I'm talking about the psychic life that undergirds our investments. And, you know, there has been at moments, I mean, um, attention from psychoanalysts towards the biological sciences. Uh, Lacan certainly has written uh, about this. So has uh, Jean Laplanche. 
um, in his study of Freud's biological temptations, but also more curious figures, or maybe um, surprising, someone like Gaston Bachelard, who was interested in the psychoanalysis of fire. And I'm not saying that any of these are the solution, but they at least foreground the ways in which sexuality structures knowledge claims and knowledge practices, and then also political investments. Um, And that if we were attentive to the complexity of sexuality, unconscious sexuality, that we might be able to deepen our understanding, what we might call working through our myopic devotions to nudibranchs or, you know, to dolphins or whatever it might be, that is crucial uh, as a starting place. So I agree with you very much that that has to be folded in to the conversation. But the question is, will conservation science be interested in its libidinal investments? Um, It might be interested in the reproductive activity of fishes and the reproductive activity of corals. But is conservation science interested in its own sexual fantasies that may not be easily translatable yet? How about you personally? There's different perspectives on these fantasies. Mm -hmm. One could be if you could turn into a sea creature of Mm -hmm. your choice for a certain period of time, which one would you choose? <laughs> um, yeah, it's interesting. I so rarely allow myself the luxury of imagining uh, becoming uh, another animal, mostly because I worry about its unethical investments. But setting that aside for a moment, for me, the sensitivity of a spider is um, intriguing, depending on the species of spider, it's multiple eyes or it's multiple visual relays is intriguing to me. And mostly I see that spiderly way of being as an opportunity to question a dumbbraided version of the human that is allowed for us or allowed for me. Um, So spiders would be amongst them. I once uh, wrote about a date I had with uh, another trans person in San Francisco. It was actually at the Farallon restaurant. The design of the space is all underwater. So the chandeliers are these exquisite jellyfish all of the tables and benches have been carved as if they're coral reefs. It's a bit kitschy and a bit, you know, over the top, but it seemed a a charming and kind of fun place to have this first date. And I thought about this first date as an encounter between uh, nudibranchs, actually. Which sex might we be? Or like any good... uh, tryst or love affair who who might get a bit eaten in the 
encounter. The Nudibranch allowed me to imagine the ways in which romantic love, the ways in which um, sexual behavior, the actual identity work is already a delimitation of unconscious sexuality. And if the nudibranch can be male, female, or accountable, or utterly uninterested, then why couldn't I be these things, either metaphorically or in some kind of performative way in relation to this other trans person? Um, And so I found... Uh, you know, spiders, nudibranchs, interesting places to not become them, but to find them a bit in me. What I don't know, are they endangered? I don't know that either. Uh, I, I don't. So what can you do? What could we do? How could we facilitate to their needs? Well, um, I'm not exactly sure how to answer that, but I, I guess I would say perhaps leave them alone or be uh, thoughtful about the environments they live with, live through, are part of, to be curious about them. But I'm not sure beyond that. Maybe there's very little in the end we can do for the nudibranch, um, but to allow the differences between us and nudibranch to be inspiring, um, such that the world for us and nudibranchs is more livable, uh, more bearable. I love jellyfish, and for me it's the ways in which light moves through them that I find compelling. They're extremely beautiful and they experience water so watery, yeah? (laughs) Yes, yes. But jellyfish, many species of jellyfish thrive in human ecological catastrophe. They are, to use Haraway's, they are colonial companion species. They're good at colonization. They're good at being opportunistic. And their opportunism can run parallel to human opportunism. So, you know, they're for me an interesting species to think nearby with. This was the sixth episode of Ocean Wants featuring Eva Hayward. Ocean Wants is a podcast series commissioned and produced by TVA 21 Academy. Conceived, hosted, and edited by Ingo Nierman. Music composed and arranged by Villa Haimala. Intro read by Joan Jonas. Credits read by Stacey Boucher. Sound edited by Robin Michel. Produced by Ingo Nierman and Maria Montero Sierra. Hear more episodes at ocean-archive.org, dertunk.ch, or subscribe with your podcast provider.